Kia welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Lana Searle and Alan Blackman on today. Now to this first, Hamas gunmen entered Israeli territory and towns on Saturday and rockets being fired into Israel in the biggest attack in decades. The death toll has reached more than 1,100 people. Thousands more have been wounded on both sides. More than 250 bodies are said to have been found at the site of a music festival where dancers were taken by surprise by Hamas gunmen during the early stages of the attack into Israeli territory in the weekend. Minister Nanaya Mahuta's first tweet on social media was criticised as being too lukewarm considering the scale of the attack. Prime Minister Chris Hipkins on Sunday afternoon told reporters that New Zealand condemns unequivocally the Hamas attacks on Israel. We are appalled by the targeting of civilians and the taking of hostages which violate fundamental international humanitarian principles. So a developing story this with us. Geoffrey Miller is a geopolitical analyst at the Democracy Project who writes on New Zealand foreign policy. He did an article on this featured on the RNZ site this morning. Uh, Geoffrey, welcome. Good afternoon, Wallace. Well, good to have you here, Geoffrey. The Security Council uh, has met on this issue. They've acknowledged this as a game-changing moment. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, you have to go back to 1973, to the Yom Kippur War, to find any comparison to what we've seen now. I mean, this, those numbers you were just reading out are just staggering. The loss of life, uh, 700 Israeli lives have been lost. Of course, several hundred Palestinian lives have now been lost in the retaliatory attacks by Israel. You know, to put that in context, you know, those 700 Israeli lives that have, have been lost now, you know, that's already a quarter of the entirety of the Yom Kippur War, which went on for three weeks back in 1973. So, and this is just 48 hours into this conflict. So, uh, you know, it's just horrific what we're seeing. I see, I'm looking at the latest BBC, the US says it's moving an aircraft carrier, ships and jets to the eastern Mediterranean. Geoffrey, is there a risk that this uh, escalation could broaden or, or indeed become a wider conflict with an even greater impact? Yes, I, I think there's a huge risk that this conflict now could spiral into war. Uh, it could spiral, spiral though out of control, could bring in some of these other players like Iran. Remember, uh, Hamas is a, a terrorist group um, in control of Gaza, and, but it's very much supported by Iran. That's where all the rockets and the arms and weapons come from, is is from Iran. So, uh, you know, if Iran became involved directly uh, here in the conflict, you would end up with a state-to-state a conflict, Iran versus Israel. I mean, there's so many unknown factors here, and it could get all get very, very nasty. It already is bad enough, but it could get a lot worse than what we've seen already. Some on a panel, they might want a question, a, a thought. Lana? Just wondering about our international commitments here. Of course, we've condemned it. That's the first move. But from that point, Jeffrey, what can happen from here? I know it's it's early days, but a lot's been done already. There's not a lot, of course, New Zealand can do right now. We've yeah. used our voice. It took a while to get there yesterday. Uh, yeah. Nanaima Hutha didn't use those that word condemn, and Chris Hipkins had to tidy things up later on. But we did get there in, in the end. And look, you know, when, when you've got you know, hundreds of civilians being targeted, 
Um, these were not military targets. These were civilians, concert goers, mm. you know, attending a music festival who were who were massacred uh, there in cold blood. Uh, you've got to call a spade a spade. So we've used our voice there and condemned the attack. I think beyond that, though, you know, New Zealand needs to think very carefully. Uh, we have our independent foreign policy, and that means doing what we can do best uh, as a small country. There are things that New Zealand can do that other bigger countries uh, cannot do. So, you know, in the end, you know, while there will be a military response now and there will be a, a brutal bloody war between Israel and Hamas and, and, and uh, you know, Palestinians led by Hamas, um, you know, in the long term, we need a durable two-state political solution. Now, that might sound like a pipe dream right now, but if you go back to that comparison I was talking about earlier, the 1973 Yom Kippur War, just five years after that, you had uh, the Camp David Accords that led to Israel signing a peace treaty with Egypt. So sometimes the darkest moment really can come before mm. the dawn, and I, I think we need to be optimistic and be ready when there is space to do so to lead that dialogue, diplomacy, de-escalation. And I think New Zealand could play a role in, in that. I'm not saying necessarily New Zealand will be able to lead that effort, but in, in concert with other countries, you know, you think of the likes of Norway, Ireland, um, right. other small democracies, I think New Zealand could do a lot there. Right. Yeah, Alan. Well, <clears throat> I guess my feeling is that we don't really need to take sides on this because we can both advocate for Palestinian statehood and we can absolutely, utterly, utterly condemn the evil, evil actions and inhuman actions that Hamas have um, taken. And um, I think the whole taking of hostages thing, uh, I think everything is going to hinge on that, what happens in the future. Um, you know, according to some reports, there are hundreds of hostages have been taken. They are going to be somewhere in Gaza, and by God, I feel for those people, yeah. um, because they are going to be hostages for possibly years. They were talking earlier today about a, uh, an Israeli soldier who was held for five years um, as a hostage, and, um, you know, is Israel, you know, what, what can they do to save these people? Um, and... You know, everything is up in the air, and it's just madness. It's just utter madness. And if Itzhak Rabin hadn't been shot by that deranged Israeli guy back in about 95 or whenever it was, then this surely wouldn't be happening now because everything was well on the way to at least some sort of um, closure, I think. But um, uh, this is this Pretty is just days. Yeah. Just in terms of, um, I mean, this is uh, going to likely continue for some time, uh, Jeffrey, and we have an election in six days. Um, will our response to this new war be one of the New Zealand government's first challenges? Or is this actually a reminder of how central um, foreign policy does need to be? In, indeed. You know, foreign policy is not typically a big issue during our election campaigns. And, you know, this campaign, campaign has been no exception, you know, apart from one or two questions in the debates. We haven't really had foreign policy as an issue, but suddenly it's uh, it's burst onto the campaign in the final week, and it will go on. You know, it will be one of the big challenges for the incoming government. They're not going to have much time to get their feet behind the desk. We're going to have to have a new foreign minister uh, ready to make decisions on on how New Zealand responds and acts in the you know the days, weeks, and months, probably years to come. 
you know, this will be such a transformative event. Uh, you know, it will go down like the Six Day War in 1967, like the Yom Kippur War of 1973, 2023. Uh, this war that began on on Saturday will be will be one to remember, sadly, for all the all the wrong reasons. Nice to have you on the program, Jeffrey Kiora. That's Jeffrey Miller, uh, a geo political analyst at the Democracy Project. Uh, wrote an article around this issue, uh, which is on the. RNZ website. 16 past for the panel. RNZ National. We have Alan Blackman. We have Alana Sir with us. Now, as I mentioned, six days to go to election day and the maker for Parliament still very much up in the air, isn't it? Current polling does suggest National would need both ACT and New Zealand First to form a government. And National has raised this prospect of a hung Parliament, or indeed a second election, uh, Nationals' Chris Luxon has made it very clear that he does not want to work with New Zealand first, but polls do suggest uh, he may well need to. And after three years of a single-majority parliament, what will a possible return to a coalition government feel like? With us is Dr Grant Duncan, a political commentator. Dr Duncan, uh, welcome. Wallace. Actually, just on that, a hung parliament. Can you give us an explainer for those who might not know what it is? What actually is it, Grant? Well, can I suggest it's just a figment of the political imagination? Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> there are parties in parliament who can work together and form a government, no matter what the outcome. It's really just up to the parties to uh, grow up and make those negotiations and make it happen. So what I'm, what I'm hearing from political leaders at the moment is simply childish, really. This is, uh, this is just a situation where uh, I guess the National Party is a little bit nervous about having to work with New Zealand First. Well, parties have worked with New Zealand First in the past. They can do it again if they have to. I can't really predict uh, this side of the election whether they will have to or not. But if they do have to, they will, and they will form a government. They're just um, causing a little bit of ructions at the moment because they want to uh, manipulate voters. And same goes for the talk of a possible second election, Grant? Well, yeah, I mean, that could happen. But um, I suggest that if it does happen, those parties that are held responsible for it will be punished by voters for it. Mm. Because can you imagine how mad people will be if that happens? And um, already the party to blame would be national because they're the ones who've raised the issue. It's likely that New Zealand First would also take a share of the blame. Maybe, I don't know. But no, it's in no party's interest to let that happen. It's in their interest oh. to get together and form a government after the uh, election. New Zealand parliaments have done this before. They'll do it again. I think it's really um, a poor leadership prior to the election that's just getting a little bit out okay. of control here. Yeah, interesting. All right, Lana. Dr Duncan, when was the last time we, if we, or when we had to go again as voters? Uh, look, I, we haven't. It doesn't, it doesn't happen normally. Um, and you see, if you go back to really the old days, so to speak, you know, uh, before we had that two-party uh, duopoly before 1935, we had some real doozy hung, so-called hung parliaments. 1928 is the classic example. But the New Zealand Parliament is a, is a very adaptable institution. A government will be formed because that's the need and that's the expectation. Mm -hmm. 
It does often require some very awkward compromises, but compromises get made because it's in no one's interest to let things fall through because every party knows that if they're held responsible for forcing the country back to the polls, they'll get hammered for it. Yeah, Alan. <clears throat> yeah, there's one um, possibility that nobody seems to be talking about, and that's a grand coalition between National and Labour. Really good point. And that's one solution here. I mean, the Germans have done it more than once. That's mm. what kept Angela Merkel uh, yeah, yeah. In, in office for 16 years. Mm. And they have the MMP system very similar to ours. So that's yeah. one thing. Um, the Greens could exercise their options. They didn't bother to do that in 2017, but uh, they could do that. The, the, the point is that it's all. It's, I think ideally every party should be prepared to speak with every other party after the election. We're really mm. locked into a silly left and right block uh, mm. imaginary. Mm. We really need to think about parties uh, reaching across the aisle, so to speak, uh, National and the Greens maybe working together or something like that, or National and Labour forming a grand coalition. Mm. Mm. Let's just think outside okay. the square. So and therefore it's up. <laughs> sorry. No, sorry, keep Walsh. going, keep going. Oh, I just think it's up to the, the political leaders to show some statesmanship and and, and really do that mahi outside yeah. of those uh, outside of those boxes. Yeah, kia ora, Grant. Sorry for interrupting there, but I was just uh, my mind was blowing around this possibility of a grand coalition. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, right. It's but, interesting. It's not, I want to I want to put it out to the the wonderful panel family across the Motu. Would yeah. you support an idea? Here's here's a question. <laughs> Would you support an idea of a Labour National Coalition? Because in theory, uh, Dr. Duncan, there's no reason why it couldn't happen. Mm. Well, of course not. And it's been done in Germany. Well, I did actually ask that question in one of those stuff polls back in uh, 2017, if I recall rightly. And most people thought I, I was being a bit silly. It was just they sort of said that's an absurd idea. Mm. But actually, it's perfectly possible. Uh, we have had coalition governments before of that nature in wartime. I was just about to so say, war, yeah, in war. Yeah, yeah. yeah so when it's necessary, it, it can and it should be done. Yep, yep. And so I, I sort of say, well, why not? Let's just let's just open our minds a little bit to the reality of, of this MMP environment. Well, that is what the panel is about, Grant. You came to the right program <laughs> wow. um, because they haven't heard this discussed before, Lana. Uh, what, what do you make of that? A I, great yeah, coalition I, between uh, National and Labour. There you go. I mean, this is what it's about. It's about not saying no to everything yeah. and just mm. sitting back and listening. And I, and I guess... You know, I mean, you're right, Alan. They're both central. Yes, I mean they so, they agree with more on more things yeah. than they disagree with. Hmm. I mean, you know, monetary yeah. policy and all that sort of stuff. Economically, you know. Well, Grant, would you believe it? Look at our <laughs> listeners. Gosh, such, <laughs> such good advice. Let's <laughs> some growing ups get to Parliament. Yes, to a national Labour. Uh, this is actually not a bad idea. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Alan, what are you doing next Here election? Political pundit. Here we go. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. All right. Um, now, in terms of, did you want to bring something up? Uh, did you have a question for uh, another question for um, Grant? Oh yeah. No, no. I think I think the one thing that this does highlight is, dare I say it, the um, possibly the bad thing about MMP and the fact that those parties who just get that five percent, um, they do get um, a lot more influence than than five percent, let's say. And I think this is a great well, argument but, but, for not lowering yeah. the five percent threshold, please. No, no but yeah. once but once again that's that's a that's a figment of the political imagination. It doesn't have to happen that way. And one of the problems with, with our system is not so much the electoral system, it's what happens after the election. Mm. 
and we don't have proper processes for ensuring that all the parties talk to one another. The absurd thing and completely unnecessary thing that happened after the 2017 election was that one player was able to determine the process of negotiations as well as the outcome. Mm -hmm. That should never have been allowed to happen. But unfortunately, in our Westminster system, the Governor-General has to step back and really can't play a role in managing the process. But in other countries, there's a little bit more management of the process to ensure that there's a sensible formation and negotiation process. So interesting, Grant. Thank you for that. Uh, just finally, um, if uh, if there's not a strong, decisive result on election night, someone asks, what happens then? Well, what happens is that the parties get together and they negotiate. Yeah. They become decisive. That's what we expect of them. Their leaders, for heaven's sake, show some statesmanship, <laughs> get together, negotiate, co- collaborate. That's the whole point of MMP, was to have governments where you have you know, some mixture of ideas and different values and ideologies, and they're forced to get along with one another and come to some kind of arrangement. Uh, and so, in the spirit of MMP, just get on with the jobs, guys. <laughs> oh, Grant, I, I, don't, I don't like the chances of what we've seen so far. I'm not sure they're going to get along at all. Let's <laughs> be well, a fly on the wall yeah, for the, that chat. Yeah, exactly. The silliness that happened with Chris Bishop suggesting that it's just maybe just impossible, his words, to do a deal between National Act and New Zealand First. I'm sorry, it is possible if you have to do it. Just do yeah. it. Grant, get very enlightening. That was really interesting, actually. So th- thank you for that. And, uh, right, yeah. Yeah, very good. That's Dr Grant Duncan there, political commentator there. Uh, and the question I asked was, well, actually, Alan asked it, uh, what, what do you think about a grand coalition? Uh, and actually, interestingly, uh, quite a bit of support uh, on this. Yes, I would support a... National Labour Green Coalition. So we're talking about a grand coalition this afternoon. The other big question I asked you, our question of the day was this. Do you have a phobia? Because last week, Raven Can came on the show and revealed he had discovered he has a paralysing phobia of heights, specifically over swing bridges. And the text machine just went off. Many people have a paralysing fear of heights, swing bridges. But what are some of the other common phobias? So uh, with us first, we have Val. No, sorry, we have Barbara on the phone. Barbara, welcome to the panel. Hello, how are you all? Very well, Barbara. What is your phobia? Um, It's chalk. I can't stand chalk. The feel of it, Hmm. uh, even even seeing it is like, um, just gives me the creeps. Yeah. How interesting. It's it's just that dry feeling, like um, I can't stand dry dirt either. Um, ah, a bit like corn flour too. <laughs> oh God, yes, yeah, no, that, that, that's awful. Yeah, that sort of texture is just yeah beyond yuck. <laughs> well, school, school must have been hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, my, I've got grandkids, and they've um, gone to sort of drawing with chalk on the driveway, oh, and I no. just sort of thr- throw the bucket of chalk at them and say, go for it, and you can pick it up. You should just turn your driveway into a huge whiteboard, and then you'll be fine. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, yes. Marker pens. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Barbara, stay away from the chalk, and I appreciate you being on the panel. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys.
All right, so we're talking about phobias 2101. What is the phobia that you have with us now is Val. Welcome, Val. Thank you. What's yours? Mine is the one which is sparked by clusters of seeds, sunflower seeds. Ah, uh, this is the trypophobia. Mm. This, yeah, is this the trypophobia one? Yes, that's right, yes. Ooh, so okay. explain it to us. What happens when you see it? Well, it first crept up on me when I was a teenager in South Africa looking at the sunflowers growing in our garden, and I suddenly I looked at the black center with those clusters, and I suddenly had this feeling of absolute revulsion. And from then onwards, I avoided it. Um, and then my friend gave me, uh, and of course you don't get too many of those over here, but my friend gave me a lovely present. I unwrapped it. It was for my shelves collection, and it was a cluster of barnacles. Oh, no. And I remember having to control my breathing and act absolutely <clears throat> delighted that she'd given me this lovely present, and it was. Wow. And I only told her about um, four years later. <laughs> oh. Lana, wow. how about that? Gosh. That sounds yeah, mm. pretty yucky. And tentacles of octopuses, my friend tells me too. She's obviously listening. She gets the same thing. I, Just you poor thing. I'm sorry it. about that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I guess. <laughs> I, I guess Val. When I come into this, I just can't. I just can't understand your phobia. I can't get that you'd look at a sunflower mm. or some holes. Yeah. I just can't yeah. understand it. Well, I can't either. Um, mm. My theory was that it, maybe it's a primitive reaction to something that could be diseased. Mm. So that was my yeah. Little, yeah. my theory. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it, I haven't come across many people, but it's been interesting to hear that there are so many versions of it. Well, yeah. there's actually a lot. Yeah, someone says, I too have a severe aversion to little holes and bumps. It's a thing. I think it's an evolutionary mm-hmm. advantage because if you avoid things like that, you're probably avoiding infectious flesh. So there's something to this, isn't mm-hmm. there, Val? But isn't it interesting mm-hmm. how different people have different phobias? Yeah, sure is. Yep. And, and what, a, what a fascinating topic for your panel. Well, there's, oh, yeah. Val. <laughs> there's many, many, many PhD <laughs> theses in psychology just, you know, on, on these sorts of things. Yeah. Nice one, Val. Very good to have you on the program. Well, it's bumping up to the uh, headlines, but uh, we do have, I want to get sort of uh, Lana and Alan's response on whether or not they have uh, phobias. Uh, Alan might well have a phobia after the song I'm going to play very shortly. (laughs) 